you'll grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 while you remain standing. Matthew chapter 5, over the next two sermons from me, which will be this week and two weeks from now, I want to walk through this topic, the law, letter versus spirit. And what I'm going to do today is a little bit different than we usually do when we're reading. I'm going to read uh, a couple of verses from each of these three passages. Uh, What Jesus does here is he takes six Old Testament uh, laws, rules, and he gives clarification or instruction upon those rules. He adds uh, some, some context to them. And so we're going to work through three of those today. Uh, murder, adultery, and divorce. Man, there's a, there's a good little conversation starter at lunch. Amen? Uh, I, I think the songs are great because we do need to be reminded of the worthiness of the name of Jesus, the worthiness of Christ our Savior. That helps us understand the application of these verses. We don't do this because this is what the law requires. We do this because this is what Jesus is worthy of. Amen? So I'm going to skim through here. I'm going to read a couple verses out of each of these. Uh, I thought about calling this sermon mad. And I thought that would go over about like it just did. (laughs) Murder, adultery, divorce. Get it, Grace in the light. Come on. I see you. I see you, boy. I thought about preaching them in reverse order, but then I was afraid I would upset Beavers and the Hydroelectric Power Company. Some of y'all will get that at lunch. Let's read Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read a couple verses out of each of these passages, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who murders, I'm sorry, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now, skip ahead to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let me give clarification here before we go to the last. When it says, whoever looks at a woman, he's speaking to the man because the men were more responsible. That was their their responsibility to lead. Uh, That's how God has structured the marriage. Uh, Just as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the house. That doesn't mean that women can look with lust and not get in trouble. That means all of us can't look with lust. But he's pinpointing out the men here because of the context he was in and also because of their responsibility. So now let's go down to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, whoever, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. God, we need your clarity today. We need your voice to be heard, not mine. Your will, not mine. Your opinion, not mine. God, would you speak clearly today through your word, through your servant. God, help us to know what you want us to do with these verses and help us to apply it so we can bring you glory because, Lord Jesus, your name is worthy. We pray this prayer in that name. Amen. You may be seated. So, Prayerfully, last week, we established that Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. And also, prayerfully, we clarified how the law works in the life of a follower of Jesus today. So in the next two passages, the next two messages, I want us to look at how he clarified the application of that law. Now, what has not changed, several things have not changed since the dawn of time. But one thing that hasn't changed is in the Old Testament, in the New Testament church, and even today, Overly religious people would rather live checkbox lives than lives of surrender. 
Now, you can amen that or owe me that. It doesn't matter. I'm not meddling yet, but you just you do with that what you will. But the overly religious, the Pharisees of this day, and we've got some of them in Baptist churches all over the country today, we would rather live a checkbox life than live a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because checkbox is neater. I did this. I didn't do that. I did this. I didn't do that. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. That's not what the Bible calls for us to do. You see, the Pharisees viewed conformity to the letter of the law as their pathway to heaven. Remember, the Bible says you search for me in the Scriptures thinking that there's eternal life in them. There's not eternal life in the Scriptures. There's eternal life in Jesus. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. That's who we're looking for, for our salvation. But the Pharisees ignored the spirit of the law and how they approached others. Now, the law only has one problem, and it is the same problem that every other construct that we know in our day or in, in history has. People. The law would be great except for people. I say this all the time. Church would be perfect if it weren't for all the people, your pastor included. Y'all know I've told you this before. My most problematic church member is preaching to you right now. He gives me more trouble than anybody else. He drives me up a wall. We are people and we mess things up and we've done that with the law. The law points out our sin. It tells us how we're to live and it also tells us we can't live that way. We can't get to that level. So we need Jesus Christ to take our sins away. So again, he takes six of these Old Testament laws and he interprets them in a way that focuses on the attitudes of our heart and not just the amplitude of our actions. The attitude of the heart, not just the amplitude of the action. That's the problem with us. It's a whole lot harder to judge the heart. It's a whole lot harder to measure the heart and, and, and judge the heart. It's easy to look at our actions. Again, that checklist Christianity, it works when you're just trying to do and not do. But here's the thing, we cannot do enough to get to heaven. What we have to do is accept what has been done on our behalf. So Jesus says in these six passages, and we're going to go over three of them today, the law told you X, and I'm telling you Y. All right? The law told you this, but I'm telling you that. Now what he's doing is, he is clarifying and instructing on the spirit, not just the letter. Why can he do that? Because he's God. <laughs> He's the author of the book. He can do what he wants to. He tells us, you've heard it said this way, but I'm giving you further clarification, and I'm telling you we need to take it one step further. Romans 13, verses 9 and 10 is a good summation kind of of what we're talking about. Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. He's quoting Exodus 20, 13 through 17. He says, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of people hear that and say, oh, that's some of that New Testament, New Covenant, New Age, whatever. We need to go to the old paths. We need to stick to the old roots. Well, by the way, that's quoting Le Leviticus 19, 18. You can't get much old school than Leviticus. Amen? How many of y'all ever quit reading through the Bible because you got to Leviticus? <laughs> Tell the truth. Stay in the church. So he takes this love your neighbor as yourself, plucks it out of the Old Testament law, drops it to the church in Rome, and then he gives clarity to that. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. What a, what a, you think maybe Paul was paying attention when he was reading some of this stuff and, and knowing some of what the, what, what the Bible had said in the New Testament? Listen to this. John 15, 13, Jesus says this, No greater love has any man than he lay his life down for his brother. 
So not only did Jesus fulfill the law as in he didn't sin, he didn't break the law, but he also fulfilled the law of love in that he died for us. Now, Stephanie, aren't you glad that you didn't have to get to some certain level for Jesus to die for you? Steph would probably be there. I'd still be short. I would still be working my way to get to that level where I would be good enough for Jesus would die for me. By the way, he would, I would never get good enough for Jesus to die for me. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, God proved his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died before you got good enough. You know why? Because you couldn't get good enough. And that's the point of what he's trying to say here. He's taking these Old Testament rules, and he's given us a, a New Testament understanding of the application of those rules. The first one I want to talk about, and, and I'm going to keep saying that because of force of habit, I don't want to talk about any of this. Can I be honest just for a minute, Brother Gene? I don't want to deal with any of this. I've been reading this for four weeks, and every time I read it, I, I get more nervous. Number one, it's a pretty lofty endeavor to try to cover three of these today and not ever have everybody burn their casseroles or their, their pork roast get dry while you're waiting on getting home. But it's also a huge endeavor to work through murder, adultery, and divorce knowing that I'm probably going to make 25% of y'all mad before we're done. I know that, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm not happy about it, but I'm okay with it. Because I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you to the best of my ability, the best of my understanding, prayerfully over 20-something years of walking with Jesus and studying his word, here's where I've landed on these topics. And I believe it's scriptural, and if that upsets you, go with God. <laughs> I promise you won't be any more upset with me than I usually am. So verse 21 quotes Exodus 20, verse 13. It says, do not murder. By the way, do not kill is a terrible translation of that Hebrew word. It's not kill, it's murder. So if you, if you murder someone, it means you've taken an innocent life. And that is sin. That's what the Bible says. Now, this is not talking about nation against nation. If a nation goes to war, that's not murder. If somebody tries to kill you and you defend yourself and kill them, I don't believe that's murder, okay? Now, it's not something we should be looking for, but the text says do not murder. And, and everybody know why they call it murder? Grayson's been waiting on this sentence for a week. Everybody know why they call it murder? Because R is amongst the most menacing sounds. That's why they call it murder and not muck duck. All right. A handful of people watch The Office. That, that's a quote from The Office. I'm sorry. That was just completely terrible. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, though, every time April and I are watching some, and we watch a bunch of these, like, police drama shows on, on uh, streaming, and every time they say murder, I'll say muck duck, and I get the dirtiest <laughs> looks, just scowls over at me. All right. All kidding aside, here... Nothing in Scripture happens accidentally. So Jesus begins with murder. Why? Because that's a big ticket number, right? And, and also, this is one of those where it's easy to be holier than thou. Well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, good. I hope, I hope you set the bar a little bit higher as being a citizen and being a good person than I hadn't killed anybody, though I have driven on Airport Boulevard this morning. See, Jesus emphasizes the connection between our horizontal relationship with others and our vertical relationship with Him. If you want to be right with God, you must first get right with those in the family of God. He says, uh, if you're offering your gift on the altar, 
and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift on the altar, go be reconciled with your brother or sister. Now, be reconciled there means make peace. Now, sometimes, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like this, all right? This is one of those things that I don't like. If God let me change it, I would. If he gave me pen and ink permission, I would pen and ink this, but he doesn't. Sometimes making peace means that you've got to swallow some pride. Sometimes making peace means you've got to eat some of that old crow. And listen to me, I, they, every way you can cook it, I don't like eating crow. You can casserole it, you can barbecue it, you can, I don't like crow, but sometimes you have to eat crow to make peace. Why? Listen to me, because peace must always be more important than pride. We must be reconciled. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Man, it's almost like John listened to Jesus when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, brother or sister there is Adelphos. And it means, in the Greek, literally means from the womb. There's a, a connective participle there. And then the word Delphos, which means womb. So it literally means we are family from the womb. I would even go one step further to say we are family before the womb because we know that God chose us from the foundation of the world. And we are to be conformed in the image of Christ as we are being conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, we should be making peace or reconciling with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says if you insult them, if you say raka, which is an Aramaic term of abuse that puts down someone's intelligence, if, if we do that, then we are committing murder. So you don't have to take a knife out and stab. You don't have to take a gun out and shoot. You don't have to take poison out and, and poison. You can just hate someone, and you've committed murder in your heart. Listen to, listen to this pharisaical uh, reception of this. The Pharisees hear that and say, ooh, I don't like that. I, I've, been, I've been feeling pretty good about myself with my long robes and tassels and sitting in the good places and being uh, adored and, and, and revered. And now you're telling me that I'm, I'm just an old common sinner because I do hate people. If you'll go on a little bit further and look in Matthew's gospel and others, you will see that the Pharisees hated Jesus. I mean, they hated him. And it's funny to me that he's telling them way early on, hey, when these Pharisees hate me, they're committing murder in their heart. Here's the reason you don't need a knife or poison or a gun. You know why? Because every one of you is outfitted with the most deadly, dangerous weapon known to man. Seriously. Listen to how James describes this weapon in James 3. He says it's a fire. He says it's a world of unrighteousness placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Woo! That's a deadly weapon, isn't it? Every kind of animal has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. And here's how James surmises the tongue. He says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 21, says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue is so deadly that God is not even interested in your offering until you have tamed the tongue and swallowed the pride and made the peace. That's what that passage says. Don't, don't bring your offering up here. If you're bringing your offering and you go, oh man, I, I got people mad at me for stuff that I did. Now, let me, let, me pair, let me back up just a little bit and give you a little parentheses. 
Sometimes people are just going to not like you. The Bible says, and as much as it is up to you, be at peace with everyone. Now, sometimes you just got to, not they've turned into a cliche, but you just got to let go and let God. You say, look, I have apologized. I have tried to make amends. I have done everything in my power to make things right. That person has just made their mind up that I'm Satan incarnate, and there's nothing I can do about it. You know what you do? You go home and pray for them. And you pray for them, and you pray. It's real hard to be mad at somebody you're praying for. The word adversary in verse 25 is a legal term. It talks about an opponent in a lawsuit. And then in verse 26, he says, you'll never get out of there. Talking about being thrown in prison because you've had this grudge with this adversary. You'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. That word is quadrons. And it is the smallest and least valuable of all Roman coins worth about 164th of a daily wage. So at 725 an hour, an eight-hour day, that would mean that he's talking about 90 cents worth you're not going to get out there until you pay the last dollar you're talking about inflation we went from a quadrant to a dollar in other words about a about a quarter's worth of gas so what he does is he starts in the grand scale he looks hey murder and that gets everybody's attention and he says you've never committed murder but if you hate somebody you have and then he turns the page to adultery another popular topic in verse 27, he quotes Exodus 20, 14, which is black letter law, as we would say, clear as day, do not commit adultery. Now, I want to I offer this to you. The word lustfully there is um, epithumeo in the Greek. And here's the meaning. That's why I include this. I know Greek just blesses your heart. I know it does. I'm a, I'm a word nerd, so I like it. Here's what the word means in the Greek. You ready? To set the heart upon. Well, now that sounds different to me than looking at with desire or sexual desire. You're thinking thoughts that you shouldn't think. That is to set the heart upon. See, lust is an act of the will. It's an intentional, purposeful act. It's not a natural response. Now, I've heard it said, well, men are visual creatures and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. That's a big, fat cop-out, by the way. We are visual creatures. If you don't believe me, again, the Super Bowl commercials prove that we are visual creatures. But we still have a choice to make. I'm a visual, I'm a visual being. The visual draws me, but I have to make a choice. Listen, like everything else in life, I have to make a choice. Am I going to sin or am I going to redeem the time? Am I going to honor Christ? When I look and I see something that draws my heart, I have to turn away. I have to find something else to look at or think about. I cannot allow myself to make that conscious, willful act of lingering with my gaze, with letting my mind run to places that my body should not go. Why? Because it's sin. It's not just the act of adultery. It's the purposeful thought of adultery. When I decide in my heart that I'm going to let that ruminate, when I think with my mind, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ponder on this thing that I've seen, that is an act of adultery. Listen to what Job said. I found this amazing, and I don't know, I know I've read it, but I don't know that it ever hit me like this. Job chapter 31, verses 1 and 2, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Did you catch that? 
he hadn't made a covenant, Ron, with his wife. He has, but that's not what he's talking about. And he's not talking about the covenant he made with God. See, we have two covenants that are critical in our lives. We have a covenant with God first, and we have a covenant in marriage second. And marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what the scripture has said from Genesis all the way to the end. If you want to you find out what God thinks about something, find the first time he talks about it. Tony Evans said that. And it's true. God does not change his mind. He does not adapt. He does not evolve because he's perfect, just, and holy. When he says this is what it is, that's what it is. So our covenant with God is number one. Our covenant with our spouse is number two. Ecclesiastes would say a cord of three strands is not easily broken because we take that covenant of marriage and we wrap it around that covenant of following Christ and being under the lordship of Christ. But Job takes it one step further and he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. In other words, it ain't about my wife. It's about me being personally responsible to the Lord that I call my God And I do not allow my eyes to break covenant with my heart and lead me to sin. He says, how then could I look at a young woman? For what portion would I have from God above or what inheritance from the Almighty on high? Job got it. Job understood. It's not about the act. It's not about the overtness. It's about the sin in your heart. 2 Samuel 11 is one of the most tragic stories in the life of a great man. A man we're told is a man after God's own heart, King David. Uh, David is supposed to be out at war because that's what the scriptures say uh, during this season when, the, when kings would be out at war. We don't find him out at war. We find him where? At home. And not even at home, but where? On the roof. Listen to what he says here. 2 Samuel 11, 2 and 3. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Uh, by the way, what do we think he was up there for? He's the king. He can stroll anywhere he wants to. Why is he strolling up there? Now listen to me. He's strolling where you'd be scrolling. He strolled around the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. How did he know that, John? He studied on that thing, didn't he? So David sent someone to acquire about her, and he said, man, this is to make you mad now. Here's what David said. Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? Don't miss that. He knew who this chick was. This isn't just some gal that he saw. He knew who she was. He knew her daddy in them. He knew her husband. He knew their names. He was aware of them. He was acquainted with them. And what did he do? He looked at her and said, I don't need to be looking at that. That's somebody's wife. And I don't need to be, by the way, let me just tell you something else, guys. When you're looking at some of these young girls, that's somebody's daughter. And I'm going to just tell you, if I catch you doing my daughter that way, there's going to be a search team have to get organized. King David, with all the power in the world, looks out and sees this beautiful woman and he says, I want that. And let me tell you something, before anything else happened, before, and I believe he raped her, I believe he used his power to, to uh, overwhelm her and, and not let her be able to make a decision, and he impregnated her, and then he tried to hide it, and when her husband was too good a man to do something to let him hide it, he killed her husband. And all of that started because he was on the rooftop where he shouldn't have been. Hey, if you can't stay off of porn sites, sell your computer. 
If you can't stay off of clickbait and watching that stuff, get rid of your phone. Get you a flip phone. If everything comes around like it usually does, I've seen people wearing bell bottoms. Trust me, flip phones will come back. So David's up on the roof where he shouldn't be. He's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He should know that it's wrong and he does it anyway. Here's the question that leads me to for you today. Men and women, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Does anybody here need to get off the roof? And don't Listen, you can raise your hand if you, want to, if you want to just get out there and be real. Does anybody in here need to get off the roof? Get off the roof. You know you shouldn't be up there looking. Get off. Go back to what you should have been doing, being productive. That's the point of him saying when kings should be at war, David was not. That means he was busy doing something that was dishonoring to God when he should have been doing what God had called him to do. God had called him to be king. He didn't call him to be on the roof lusting after Bathsheba. Every sin of the hand begins in the heart. Every one. Every sin of the hand begins in the heart. Listen to what Jesus said. This is the passage from which Dr. Rogers, Adrian Rogers would say, whatever's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Matthew 15, 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. Listen, the Jews believed it was what they ate that defiled them. Jesus said, no, 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 no. What you eat goes in and out. What comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart, and that's what's defiling. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. See, we think we can avoid sin by avoiding external acts of sin. That's what, the, that's what the Pharisees believed. That's what was common in this day. And that's why Jesus is taking this path to address those things. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you that adultery is up here, not in your physical body. Thinking you can deal with sin by simply avoiding ex, uh, the external acts of sin is like thinking you can avoid an explosion by only lighting a fuse. Because you see, pornography feeds off of lust. It begins in fantasy, but it usually, almost inevitably, manifests itself in the flesh. It's often seen as victimless. Well, they, those, those women get paid to be there, not all of them. By the way, do you realize there are more people enslaved on this planet right now than any other time in history? Did you know that? And a vast majority of those are sexual slaves. They've been taken away, they've been stolen from their families, and they've been forced into this industry, even by, either by prostitution or by pornography or by both. And, and I heard a, a guy on a podcast a few weeks ago, he said sometimes they've had them as young as nine months old. Many of those people involved in pornography are against their will. It take, it's, it's like taking a poison. It slowly kills anyone who takes part in it. You may start with watching a video, but at some point the video is not enough. And here are some statistics I want to give you to help show that this is the case. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Let me share something with you before we really talk about that number. If you're looking at pornography, everybody listen to me. If you're looking at pornography, you're committing adultery already. The physical act, whether it comes or not, as far as your sin life, it's irrelevant. You have committed adultery. Seventy percent of Christian youth pastors 
report they've had at least one teen come to them for help with pornography in the last 12 months. 70%. Not, not, not in the atheistic schools and, and not out there in the heathen. 70% of youth pastors in Christian churches have had at least one teen come to them in the past year and say, I need help. About 200,000 Americans are classified as porn addicts. 40, I'm sorry, 40 million American people regularly visit porn sites. 40 million. One-third of all Internet downloads are related to pornography, and one-third of Internet users have experienced unwanted exposure to pornographic content through ads, pop-ups, misdirected links, or emails. And here's the last stat before we move on. 33, about 33% of porn viewers are women. It's not just a male problem. It's a sin problem. Verses 29 and 30 show the seriousness of lust and how deadly it can be if you allow it to fester and ferment in your heart. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to go into heaven with one eye gone or one hand gone than to go into hell. And here's what he's saying. He, the, the better understanding for us would be take your dominant eye or your dominant hand and get rid of them rather than allow yourself to go on sinning because about 70 to 90% of people are right-handed. And when he says your right hand, he's talking about your dominant hand. This is how serious it is, Andy. He, he's not even saying, well, it's, it's serious, but like you can cut your left hand off. You can pretty much operate if you're right-handed. Well, you, you, can, you can lose your left eye, but if you're right eye dominant, you can still do stuff. You can still see okay. No, he's saying it is so serious that you'd be better off to be incapable of doing anything. If you take my right hand away, I'm not signing checks. If you take my right hand away, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't fish. I mean, I, that, that's how important it is. Take your most dominant hand, your most dominant eye, and get rid of them rather than continue along this path thinking that you're okay because well, I've never committed adultery. You've lusted in your heart. You've looked at pornography. You've thought about it. Then you've sinned, and this is the importance. He's not advocating self-mutilation. He's pointing out the importance of living a sanctified life. The last one is divorce. Verse 31 quotes Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Man, that's harsh, isn't it? You marry a woman and she becomes displeasing. What's that? How, how would you define that? I want to ask a guy because I know... There'll be a conversation on the way home if I ask a guy. <laughs> How would you define becomes displeasing? That seems very vague and open-ended. If she becomes displeasing and he finds something indecent about her, why would it, why would it have that open-ended? Why would it be so loose? Listen, Jesus clarifies. Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. Not because it was God's original plan. Not because God is cool with it. Because of the hardness of your hearts. 
But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Mark 10 and Luke 16 repeat a very similar uh, phrasing from Jesus on this topic. And then Paul gives clarity in 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm going to skim through 10 through 15 for time's sake. But he says a wife's not to leave her husband. If she does leave, she's got to remain unmarried or be reconciled. A husband's not to divorce his wife. Uh, if a brother has an unbelieving wife, she's willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. If a woman has an unbelieving husband, he's willing to live with her. She must not divorce her husband. And then he's talking about the children being made holy by their union. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you, called you to live in peace. Now, divorce is a tough, touchy subject. Because marriage is the most important and impactful relationship that people can have. I take divorce very seriously because God takes it seriously. Malachi 2.16 says God hates divorce. And I do too. But I want you to hear me. Nowhere in scripture will you find that God hates divorced people. Nowhere in scripture can you find that divorce is not forgivable. Nowhere in scripture can you find that divorce is any different than any other sin. Also, if we're going to focus on what God hates, and I, listen, I've heard a lot of people trying to defend a, a very harsh view on divorce. Quote Malachi 2.16, ad nauseum. For your purposes, for edification's sake, let's go look at some other things God hates. He hates divorce, no doubt. But Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says he also hates arrogant lies, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. So here's what I want you to understand. If somebody has a sin in their life, that can be forgiven. As long as they don't reject the Holy Spirit, they can be forgiven of whatever sin they have in their life. But not all divorce is the same. Not all divorce is equal. Someone can be an unbeliever but claim to follow Jesus. It's not what you say with your mouth. It's what you live in your life. It's what you believe and what you, what you really live. They can commit adultery without ever being intimate with another person. We just talked about that. Remember I told you nothing happens coincidentally, happenstance. We go from adultery to divorce. Why? Because adultery is one of the things that Jesus tells us, sexual immorality. Why does he use sexual immorality and not adultery? Because sexual immorality can be watching pornography, can be living with lustful intentions, lustful thoughts. And someone can leave a covenant marriage while still living at the same address. Adultery can be an addiction to pornography. It can be a sexual relationship with someone else. There's really no clarification needed. If you're thinking outside your marriage, you are living outside your marriage. If you are thinking about having sex with somebody else, you are committing that sin in your heart already. That's what we just learned. And when you do that, you are negating that marriage covenant. You are trying to break covenant in the way that you are living your life. Verbal, emotional, or physical abuse are signs that a spouse has already left the marriage covenant. You say, yeah, but he still lives here. Yeah, but she still lives here. That doesn't matter. Leaving the covenant happens when you raise your hand to your spouse. Leaving the covenant of marriage happens when you start being abusive in the way you talk and treat your spouse. Uh, it's funny how God does these things. I think sometimes he's just kind of messing with me a little bit, maybe just trying to keep me on my toes. 
But just recently, this, uh, this happened back in early 2000s, maybe 2004, 2009. But it just came back up on social media last week, and I had to read all about it. For somebody, and I'm not going to use the names uh, of, the, of the church or anything, but, but this person publicly called out this woman for leaving her husband. And they shamed her into going back to her husband, even though she had reported abuse. I want you to hear me, church. I'm not, I'm not being high and mighty and holier than thou. I'm just telling you, that ain't accurate. When he's abusing her, he's left the covenant. Come to find out, the man was not only abusing his wife, he was molesting his children. He's in jail today because of it. But the church, thinking they were doing the right thing, I'm not trying to say the church was trying to act immorally. The church was trying to do what they thought was the right biblical thing, and they sent her back into an abusive home. I don't believe that that's accurate. I don't believe that is a a Christ-like approach to somebody who is being abused or molested or, or mistreated at home. We cannot have this view of, 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 uh, of, of divorce like it's some unpardonable sin. It's some scarlet letter that once you've been divorced, you've got a big D that you have to wear on your clothes. And everybody knows, ooh, there they come. Oh, look at them. And by the way, can I just tell you this? I, I've never been divorced, thank God. I've been really close to it with some friends of mine and walked through some really rough times. One of my best friends back in Dothan went through a terrible divorce. And he's sitting across from me at my office, and we're talking, and he's weeping. This big, tough, burly, bad dude is weeping and he says divorce is like a death in the family but you don't get to have the funeral so as much as I can understand I think I understand can I tell you what I know to be true about everybody that I know who's ever been through a divorce they don't need that scarlet letter they don't need you condescending looks they feel guilty enough about it as it is I'm here to tell you that God is not asking you to carry that guilt your whole life he's telling you to give that to him If he can make all things new in me, he can make that divorce new. He can make that relationship. He can repair that relationship. If both those people will turn to Christ, he can repair that relationship. But he's not going to let you walk around in bondage the rest of your life for a bad decision on somebody else's part or your part for that matter. See, we have to be careful not, not to do this thing that we like to do where we look at some sin as worse than other sin. I know some preachers like to take divorce out and beat it with a stick about once a month. I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's edifying. I don't think that's scriptural. We have to be careful to approach all sin as sin and not to focus only on the sins that don't directly impact us. You see, our tendency is to focus on the outward expressions of our faith. But we need to always remember that God is primarily concerned with our motives. That's really what Jesus is saying in these passages, isn't it? Do not murder. Okay, well, I ain't killed anybody, so I'm golden. And he said, no, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. Don't commit adultery. I'm good. I've never slept with another woman. He said, yeah, but if you think about it, it's as good as doing it. See, he's trying to get us to understand it's it's a matter of what's in here, not what other people see us do out here. Sunday morning Christianity is, is really not worth a whole lot. He wants that living, breathing growing relationship with him that happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. See, he doesn't want to come in and, and take some space in your heart. He wants you to surrender your life to him. One of my favorite passages when I think about how God sees things is 1 Samuel 16, 7. 
uh, again, because I think, I think God was having some fun at Samuel's expense a little bit. He goes, Samuel, go to Jesse's house, and I'm going to get you to anoint one of his sons as the next king. And so Samuel goes, and he's like, well, which one? And he goes, and he talks to Jesse, and he's, I'm here to anoint one of your sons. And the first of Jesse's sons, the oldest boy, as usually the firstborn are, teasing. Jesse's first son comes up, and he looks like he ought to be, like, in WWE. I mean, he's got that chiseled jaw, and he's got that big physique, and he just this towering presence, and he looks, he looks kingly. And Samuel looks at him and says, oh, that's got to be him. And God goes, no. It's not him. And Samuel's incredulous, and he says, but look at him, and here's what God says. Humans see what is visible. The Lord sees the heart. See, it wasn't his first son, his second son, his third son. It was his last son. It was a little shepherd boy that his daddy, listen to me, his daddy didn't even think he was going to be king. His daddy didn't even think he was worth coming in and letting the prophet look at him. His daddy didn't think he was worthy, but God did because God sees the heart. And God said, I've got a plan for little David. Send him in here. Hey, Samuel, anoint him as the next king. We've been talking a little bit about this this pendulum thing. I've kind of come with a term, uh, the pendulum propensity, that people fall into this propensity to be on one extreme or the other, this uh, hyper-conservatism or hyper-liberalism. You've got to pick a team. If you watch one news station, you're this thing. And if you watch this other news station, you're this thing. And you can't just be in the middle. You can't be level-headed and judge everything as it comes. We have this pendulum propensity in our lives to swing. Can I just tell you, understanding how God sees sin both externally and internally should help us keep from either extreme on the pendulum of how we live as agents of reconciliation under the grace of God given to us through Christ. And that's ultimately what this is about. It's not looking at somebody and looking down on them because they've committed some sin. When my friend Derek, when, I, when he got put in jail, I went over to see him in Bay County. Y'all have heard that story. And I went in, and the first thing I said to him, I said, Man, I want you to know one thing. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to tell you that Jesus will save you. And no matter what you've done, the state of Florida is going to deal with their part. God can forgive you, and you can have eternal life through Christ. Because God sees things differently. Now, I'm going to be honest. I was nervous about this sermon, but I was most nervous about this part right here. When I was at the health department in, in uh, Walton County, Florida, I, I worked with the health department as an environmental specialist, and we'd have to go, our least favorite thing to go on uh, was repair evaluations. Because that meant that somebody's septic system had messed up and you would have to go out there and poke around in the drain field and try to figure out what the problem was. And and nobody likes to poke around in that. It's not pleasant. And that's a lot like what this is right now. See, we're dealing with some pretty major issues. Uh, I think hatred is something that we all struggle with, if we're being honest, for most of us, in our heart. Now, we don't have that. Hopefully, we don't have a lot of murderers in the house today. But I think a lot of us have those times where we get really angry at things. We get very frustrated with things. And maybe we hate somebody. I'm here to tell you that God is commanding us to deal with that. And it's possible that there are people in this room today or watching online who are living in some adulterous relationship. 
it is much more likely there's people here today that are committing adultery in their heart because they're thinking about other women or they're looking at pornography. This scripture is telling us we better deal with that. And maybe you're here today and you have an unbiblical divorce. It wasn't sexual immorality. It wasn't abandonment. You just parted ways. Maybe you need to repent of that. God will forgive you for it. Or maybe you're here today and you've been through a biblical divorce where something happened that was not your doing. It was sexual immorality or it was abandonment. And you just feel that weight of conviction that, that you feel like people are condemning you. I'm here to tell you that the scripture says that those people are wrong. I tell this to these young ladies all the time. Anytime we talk to some of these young girls and they talk about this, I don't feel sufficient or I don't feel like I'm good enough or whatever. You know, some, some guy dumped me or whatever. And I always tell them, you are, a, you are a princess. You're a child of the king. Don't ever let somebody call you something net worse than what God calls you. I'm here to tell you, if you're under the blood of Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you're a child of the king. Don't let the enemy make you think you're less than that. If you've repented of it, God's forgiven it, you need to move on from it. So here, here's, the, here's the stickiness of this invitation time. If you need somebody to pray with you, you need to talk through some of this stuff that you're dealing with in one of these three areas, we're going to give you time to do that. We're going to have some people up here. That, come on, y'all, come on up here. We're going to have, uh, staff's going to be up here. April's going to be up here with me. If you need to come talk to somebody, you need to pray with somebody, come, come and talk to them. If you need to repent of your sins and come to faith in Christ, come do that today. Don't hesitate. And listen to me. This is, this is the thing that, that bothers me more than anything. You're burdened right now. You, you either need to come to Christ, you know you're lost, or you're dealing with some of this stuff we've talked about, and you need forgiveness. You need to get it off your chest. You need to repent. You need to just to, to, to be loved. And you won't come up here and talk to somebody because you're afraid of what somebody else in here will think. Don't let anybody else shackle you with what they might say or what they might think. You respond in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and let God work everything else out. When I pray, when I say amen, you come. Don't wait. Don't look around. Don't see if anybody else is coming. If God is prompting you to come and pray with somebody for anything we've talked about, when I say amen, you move. Let's pray. God, this is your time. We pray that you would use it. Lord, I know these messages are difficult. and Sometimes they can be scary. But I know that your grace is sufficient to cover everything we've done. I pray that you would help us to be uh, instantly obedient to whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do. And then, God, I pray that you would give us strength to do it and you would get the glory. And pray it in Christ's name. Amen.